morning, Cornerstone Church. Welcome today to church. Come on, man. You got some energy? Let's put our hands together. We're excited to be here. My name is Scott Rogers. I want to welcome the Scottsdale campus, the Santan campus, everybody joining us at cornerstoneonline.com, and of course, everybody here in Chandler. It's going to be a good day. Are you ready for it? Man, I love this place. You guys are so responsive and so full of energy and passion. It makes what I do relatively easy. And uh, this is going to be an amazing series. And I want to start just by saying that I have come to the place where there are a couple things in my life that have become seemingly absolutely essential for me in my life. The first one is what I've come to affectionately call my Jumbotron phone. It's so big. I can't even put it in my front pocket anymore. It's so big. But I'll tell you what, my phone and I have a great relationship because my phone can do some things that I simply cannot do. And it knows some things that I don't know. I don't even know my wife Shelly's cell phone number. But my phone does. One button away, and I've got her on the line. Man, my phone and I, we have this great relationship. I mean, what would you do? How many, well, how many of you guys are like me? You wouldn't be caught dead without your phone. Come on, be honest. Let's confess that today. I mean, if we didn't have our phones on us, how are we going to keep up on all the texts? How are we going to keep up on email? How are we going to tweet? How are we going to post to Facebook? How are we going to throw some pictures on Instagram? How are we going to Snapchat? How are we going to yip-yap? How are we going to do all the stuff? So many of us, we feel naked and ashamed and lonely without our phone. And we need our phone. We're sick, aren't we? Some, I am. But my phone has become essential to my life. And something else that I almost always have on me is that I could be coming to Cornerstone Church in Phoenix. I could be going to the coffee shop down the street and I almost have with me my bag. And what is in our bag often really reveals who we are and what we do. If your bag is full of books, what might that tell us? You're probably a student at school. If your bag has in it, well, maybe, you know, some of the essentials in, in your bag. Maybe you have your, your earbuds or your beats, depending on how you want to go there, right? If you're the boss, you got the beats, right? There's just essentials in our bag that we can't do without. Some of you may have chapstick in your bag, or you may have lipstick, depending on how you roll, right? Some of you may have a mirror in your bag, or you might have some binoculars, depending on who you're obsessed with. We just have different things in our bag. Then there's the little things in our bag, like keys and maybe some gum and uh, some pens. And for all the germaphobes in the world, you've got your little hand sanitizer, right? Oh, I touched the grocery cart. Oh, Lord, save me from this whole thing. we got a whole bunch of stuff in our bag. And it reveals a lot about who we are. And perhaps most importantly, because ladies, it's more than a purse, and our bag, guys, is more than a wallet because if you carry your computer with you in your bag like I do, what's in your bag reveals whether you are a Mac or a PC. <laughs> and for those of us who've read the Bible, we know without question that Jesus would use a Mac. Okay, I'm just saying. Just tell, I love you enough to tell you the truth today, all right? What's in our bag reveals a lot about us. And for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we have a, a same kind of a bag on us, and that is, what do we believe? And not only what do we believe, but what do we do with what we believe? We're going to look in this series called What's in Our Bag 
the essential core truths of what Scripture says. What do we believe? What do we do with what we believe? And if you're a follower of Christ, this series is going to be, I think, amazing because whenever we revisit those essential truths that God has showed us, it always enhances our relationship with him. And it always makes our life better. And I hope a whole bunch of you at every campus uh, don't have a relationship with Jesus because this series is going to be great for you as well because you just may discover what is it about following Christ. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to give my life to him? And it's in this series that you're going to discover some of those reasons for those of us who follow him say, that's why. What's in your bag? The essentials. And today we're going to start, we're going to get right into it, and we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. So if you have a Bible on you, turn it there in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, and here's what it says. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. How many of you in Scottsdale and Santan, here in Chandler, are online, you have Put your stick in the sand, you've drawn the line, and you know on which side you stand, and you say, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's you, come on, let me hear you today. I'm not ashamed. And then it goes on. This good news about Christ, it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. You would think that if the creator of all things has gone to the extent of communicating with us how we can have a right relationship with him and how we can be right in his sight, you'd think that we would pause and listen really close. He goes on to say, being right in his sight is accomplished from start to finish by faith. That simply means there is no other path. It begins with faith, it continues with faith, and it ends in faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Today I want to talk to you in what I would call the essential truth of, of, of salvation by faith. It might sound old school, but it's just as powerful and true as it's ever been. And if you'd like to participate at all the campuses, say this with me. Say, I'm saved by grace through faith. Now that was a little mediocre. I know there's more in you than that. Come on, everybody. I'm saved by grace through faith. So I want to illustrate this a little bit, and we want to define these words, saved, grace, and faith, really quick, because they can sound real churchy, kind of religious. So I want to illustrate it for just a moment. So I need here at the Chandler campus, I need someone who raises their hand, whom I pick, don't run up here, who I pick to come up here and help me with this illustration. So anybody, come on, anybody want to come up and help me out? Just raise your hand if that's you. If you're in, you're willing to do this. Sir, your hand went up first. Come on right on up here. Steps are right over here, by the way, to your right, right, right around there. And he's jumping right up. Come on, let's give it up for him. What's your name? Greg. Greg, I'm Scott. Nice to meet you. Say hi to Scottsdale, Santan. Hey, Scottsdale, Santan. And everybody in Malaysia. Yep. Yep. Okay. Greg? Yes. Okay. So, my name's Scott, by the way. If you're like me, you already forgot. No, I didn't. Okay, here we go. I'm saved by grace through faith. 
So I'm going to tell you in general, as we look through scripture, these words are all over the place. Saved, salvation, grace, faith. So I want to give a little bit of definition to them that this is as we get moving forward. In general, whenever you see the word saved or salvation in the Bible, it basically means rescued from danger or death. Okay? So let's illustrate that. You stand right there. No, I'm just kidding. We're not, we're not going to hurt you. Rescued from danger or death. Now, grace is one of those religious words that sometimes we can't get our mind around it. And grace in general in Scripture just simply means that I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And I also am not going to get you what you do deserve. So let's illustrate that real quick. I have right here 100 bucks. Say it, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 dollars. I know. So on behalf of Cornerstone Church, I want to give you this 100 dollars. It's yours. You can have it. Okay. Did you do anything to deserve it? No. No. Did we talk about this beforehand? No. Okay. So we're not going to do a magic trick or anything like that. No. He did nothing to deserve this money. Yet he get, you get to keep it, by the way. It's yours. Okay. And he just simply receives it. You know what happens? Like at the, the last service, the gal was like, what, what, why? What, what do I need to do? And it's, it's often in our nature to say, well, especially when we go to God, we're like, I'm great, so what do I need to do to, to earn this thing, right? But it's not that way. Grace is simply God is giving us what we don't deserve. You didn't do anything to deserve that. In fact, if you would have mowed my lawn and I gave that to you, you would have done something to deserve it, right? It's payment for what you've done. That is not what grace is in the Bible. He gets it because he's done nothing and we're just gracious to him. Done nothing to deserve it. Now, faith, scripturally speaking, is basically trust. Now, biblical faith will never tell us to believe in a fairy tale that's a lie. That is not biblical faith. And biblical faith is not you and I trying to come up with some mental ascent in believing that in the end, everything's hopefully going to work out good. I'm having faith it's going to work out. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is simply trusting that God is who he says he is. And he will do what he says he will do as has been revealed in scripture. That's biblical faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And you get a hundred bucks, man. So get off my stage and give him a hand, man. Way to go, my friend. Thank you so much. So I'm saved by grace through faith. But for me, it kind of begs the question. Saved from What? Have you ever thought that? Sometimes we just simply go, yeah, I'm saved, man. Saved from what? what? What is that? I'm saved by grace through faith, but I'm saved from what? I'm going to take you back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Read them later this week, maybe this afternoon. Because we talk about being saved from what? We have to go back there. And in Genesis chapter 1, God didn't give us this vivid description and detail of how he created the heavens and the earth. Yet it says that God created the heavens and the earth. He created animals. And later in chapter 1, it says that God created man. That he literally took dust from the ground and formed his body and breathed into him the breath of life. Literally breathed into the first man his spirit. And he became a living being. And we call him Adam. But soon after, Adam realized, hey, man, I'm all alone. I got to get someone else to hang out with me. That's the Scott translation. I got to get someone to hang out with me. And God, practicing his anesthesiology, 
puts him to sleep and supernaturally does surgery on him. And the Bible says he literally removes a rib from Adam to be the building block for the first woman. I believe that that's the reason men love barbecued ribs. <laughs> because there's something in us missing and we want one more rib. Please, give me one more. I can eat another one. All right? Hey, deep theology at Cornerstone Church today. So God creates Adam. He creates Eve. And literally, Scripture says that he gives them everything. God says, I've given you authority over all the earth and everything that's in it. And everything that's here you can have for food, the fruit, the trees, and all this stuff. And he places them in this place called the garden. And he says, it's all yours. And he had, they have perfect fellowship with God. They commune with him on a daily basis. And he is there. And they are unashamed. And they are worshiping. And it's just amazing. But he says, of all that I've given you, there is just one tree in the whole world that you cannot eat anything from. And he calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it wasn't that the fruit on that tree was, had holy cyanide or toxic worms in it or anything like that. It was simply the matter of obedience or disobedience because God is always wanting a relationship with you and with me and love is a two-way street. And, and God gave us the opportunity to freely love him. And the way that we could not love him was to disobey the one thing that he said that they shouldn't do, which is eat from that tree. And by the way, he said, if you eat from this one tree, you will die. You would have thought, well, that's uh, something that I won't forget. Chapter 3 of Genesis comes along and it takes a turn for the worse. Satan comes on the scene and he tempts Eve. And he literally says to her, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree? Now, we can look back and say, well, absolutely not. God said you can eat from every tree except for one. But he says, did God really say you can't eat any of this? Side note, temptation always tries to convince us that obeying God means that we're missing out on something better. And sin always has a declaration. And its declaration says, God, you may be the author of my life, but you are not the authority in my life. God gave us authority over the earth, but he never gave us authority over him. Eve bites the apple. Adam is standing by, passively watching this scenario. He bites the fruit. Let me say fruit because actually I made a mistake. The Bible never says it was an apple. I think it was a mango. I'd rather have mango than apple any day of the week. But I don't know what it was. But they both bite of the fruit and instantly they spiritually die. Later on, they physically died. And their fellowship with God was broken. And in them, they became broken. We look back at that scenario and sometimes we call it the fall. Everybody say the fall. When I was 14 years old, one month away from my freshman year in high school, I grew up in Michigan and it was a hot August afternoon in Michigan. And we lived on a river called the Thornapple River. And coming into our community, the Thornapple River branched off into two branches. 
And one branch went over to a dam. And of course, you know what a dam does. It opens up and all the water spills through. The other branch went right behind our neighborhood. And on the side of that, going down a hill, they put in this spillway. It was like a flood canal or a floodgate. And it was a big concrete wall. And at the top of this thing, they had three big gears, about three feet around, these steel gears. And what would happen is when the, the winter snow would melt in Michigan and the water would rise, some folks would come in and they would crank those gears up just a little bit to open up the bottom of this concrete wall. And the water would go rushing through the bottom of it over to the other tributary. And so what we would do, all the good boys in the neighborhood who never broke the rules... Well, that wasn't me, so let me get back to my story. So we would go over in the summertime, and we would go on this little floodgate thing, and we would crank open the first gear just a little bit, and the water would go rushing through on the bottom. And so what we would do is we would get off to the side, because on the bottom was a big concrete slab. And we would get off to the side, and we would run and jump way down, a little over 20 feet, down into the rushing water. And when you pop back up, the water would shoot you downstream about 100 feet. It was awesome, man. It was so cool. Bam, you go under, you come up, and boom, you go down. It was a glorious, glorious thing. One day, I was there with four other friends, and one of the guys had a brilliant idea. He said, instead of jumping from the side, what if we jump from the front? And we put one foot on that big gear and the other foot on the metal tubular guardrail that goes across the front. And we launch over the concrete pad down below into the rushing water. And we thought, well, that's dangerous. Let's go. Let's do this. So all four of the other guys go before me. They jump. They make it. We're having a blast. Awesome. I'm last. I don't know if I was last. I can't remember if I was the most scared or the smartest. Either way, I get my foot on the gear up about this high, and I'm up there with one foot, and the other foot is on that metal uh, tubular rail, and I get ready to go. I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. Just jump. Everybody else has done it. You got this. And I push off, and the rail breaks. I go down 21 feet and land on my hands and knees on a concrete slab. <sighs> exactly. Man, I laid there. The water's rushing by. I'm laying in about two to three inches of water, a little pool of water on the side of that rushing stream. Still conscious. And I don't know what I was thinking. I honestly can't recall the specifics. I, I'm sure it was uh, in a different state of mind at that moment. But I thought, oh my gosh, what just happened? I've got to get out of here. So I roll off the concrete into the water and I just begin to sink. I can't move. I can't swim. And I'm kind of yelling, help, help, and you know, all that kind of stuff. The guys jump in. They grab me. They pull me out. They rush me to the ER. A couple days later, the orthopedic surgeon says, in all of his years, he's only seen one person take a fall like that that survived. And he said it was a guy who was trying to take his own life. He jumped out of a three-story window and he landed in a bush and that saved him. My leg was destroyed. My knee was just cornflakes. Both arms were broken in multiple places. I had bones pushing up into the skin and all this stuff. Horrific scenario. I was a broken mess. And I tell you that story, and every single one of you, and I'm sure Scottsdale and Santan was the same way, when I talked about hitting that concrete slab, falling 21 feet on my hands and knees, almost everybody went, oh, because we can relate to that. 
We can envision that happening to us and just going, oh, that would be horrible. Yet when I talk to you about the fall of man and the brokenness that altered the course of creation, I didn't hear anybody wince. And I think the reason that we don't wince at that is because it wasn't an accident in our lifetime. We were born with it. We were born broken. We were born with the nature of sin in us because Scripture says that when Adam and Eve sinned, they procreated and gave us the sinful attributes that we now have. Like my kids, sadly, they are stuck with some of the physical attributes of their father. And you are, when your family line, we pass along these attributes throughout the generations. Spiritually, Adam and Eve passed along this nature of sin that's in us. Let me show it to you. Turn back to Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament in verse 12. And here's what it says. Romans 5, verse 12. Are you all there? When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sins. It got passed on to us. Have you ever, honestly, if you think about this, you ever noticed the, the constant propensity, almost the gravitational pull towards sinfulness? The desire to do things that we know wouldn't honor or please God. It's like it's in us. It's a, it's a force that lives within us. Adam sinned, and it says that it, it passed on to us, and now we have it within us. Now, we don't have to, like, it doesn't take much to see the evidence of this, right? Let's just start with two biggies, sickness and death. Scripture says that's the result of that original sin, sickness and death. But then, let's just simply look around, watch the news, right? Read the paper, go out into society and and be a part of society, and it doesn't take long to start thinking, man, something just isn't as it should be. Something's off kilter here. And then just honestly look inside ourselves, right? The, the greed, the lust, the desire, the appetite for things that are often harmful to ourselves and maybe even harmful for others, and the anger and the shame and the insecurity and all this stuff that's in us that just drives us crazy. We don't have to look very far to realize that we have been given uh, a sinful nature. And this proves it for me. This kind of is like settles the deal. How many of you at every campus, raise your hand if you have a cat in your house. You are a cat lover. Settles it right there. Sin is rampant in this world. <laughs> oh, I don't get that whole cat thing. But it proves it. Proves it. It's been passed on to all of us. But yet it, it kind of, it, it still begs the question though. Saved from what? I'm saved by grace through faith. What am I saved from? What, what, is, what, is, what does all this mean? Have you ever heard the statement, God forgives your sin? Have you heard that statement? If you've been around for a while at church, or you watch TV, or you hear people talking, God forgives your sin, you th is it true? Now you're all like, oh, I don't know. I thought it was. What's going on here? <laughs> no, it's true. However, I would suggest it's an incomplete statement. Because if God could simply forgive us our sin by turning the other way or overlooking it, Jesus would never have had to go into the cross. You see, before God forgives us of our sin, he judges our sin. Welcome to church today. We're here to encourage you. 
God judges our sin because he is holy and he is a just God. And he has created it so that there are rules, there are boundaries, and there are things that we can do and we can't do. And the original two people violated the only one thing that he told them not to do. God created them and created us because he loves us deeply. And we blew it. And some, for some reason, God's holiness, which is beyond our comprehension, cannot coexist eternally with our sinfulness. It's impossible to happen. It cannot happen. Something needs to be fixed and repaired. So God first judges our sin before he forgives our sin. So when you read the Old Testament, it is everywhere, almost to an annoying level of detail, how God had instituted this whole system of sacrifice, saying that to pay the penalty for sin, blood must be shed. It's a gory story, man. If you follower of Jesus, you're, you believe in a gory story. Read the Old Testament. It just is. And so God institutes this system of sacrifice for thousands of years. These folks are sacrificing so that it's a constant reminder of their sinfulness. But it also says to them, you've got to make these sacrifices for the covering of your sin. But the whole time, it's not that God was mean. It's that he was incredibly loving because he's setting them up. He's teeing them up for the future sacrifice of one sacrifice that would not only cover sin, but remove it forever. That's Christmas. That's when God becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, I love you enough to have created you. You've blown it, but I love you enough to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Pay a sinless sacrifice for your sin. So God in Christmas becomes a man takes on our nature, lives his life, and even in his ministry, think about this real quick. John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Everybody there instantly was thinking, sacrifice, 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 blood, sacrifice, blood. They all got it. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Christmas, God takes on our nature. On Easter, he takes on our sin. He goes to the cross as our substitute for our sin. And he hangs on the cross. Historians tell us that he was so beaten, so whipped, so mangled, that it was hard to even tell who he was. And you could see organs that were exposed because he was ripped open. And we're going to read in Isaiah 53 for a second what actually happened, not only physically, but behind the scenes, what is going on spiritually when we talk about Jesus hanging on the cross, being the substitute for the penalty of our sin, because God is saving us from his wrath and eternal separation is what he's saving us from. Isaiah 53, if you have a Bible, go there. If not, it'll be on the screen. And I'm going to go B.O.B. on you real quick. I'm going to go bunch of Bible for a second. And I'm either going to lose some of you or you might just get captivated more than you have been in a while because God might speak to you through his words. I read through this. Isaiah 53, in the middle of verse 2, speaking of Christ on the cross, says there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of, uh, of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. I can't speak for you, but I've done that so many times. He was despised, and we didn't care. Yet, it was our weaknesses that he carried. Remember, he's our substitute. 
It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but they weren't. It says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. It's awesome. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. God has gone through an extreme extent to prove his love for us. He created you. He created me. We blew it. We inherited that being blown. I'm like, well, that ain't fair. But God says, you know what? I'm going to stand in your place. And not only am I going to go through a torturous human death, my divinity is going to experience humanity. And for a moment, I'm going to be separated from my divinity. And that's like crazy stuff that's way too hard to understand and explain sometimes. But he died on the cross. But because he's the author of life, he couldn't stay there. And he rose again. But the penalty was paid. Justice was served. The sin of mankind had been taken care of. And in all of that he's done for us, yet there's still one thing missing. It's our response. What are we going to do with it? What do we do with this? Remember, love is a two-way street. What's our response? In Ephesians chapter 2, we have one of those essential verses on this whole salvation by faith. It's all over the Bible, by the way. This is not looking for a needle in a haystack. This is the primary message of Scripture. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says this, For it is by grace that you've been saved. We talked about those. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not uh, from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's God's gift. Romans 6.23 says that um, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. This is an essential teaching of the Bible. Shelly and I, every now and then we'll have people over to the house and uh, we'll barbecue. I'm talking about ribs. I can make ribs better than anybody here. I'm just telling you right now. It's a fact. We'll barbecue for folks. We'll have them over. And here's what happens though. There's that time when you're having guests over to your house and there's two levels of clean in your house, in my opinion. There is the level of clean that says, hey, this is just for family in the house right now. This is the clean that's just for us. We're good. There's some dishes on the counter. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for a few days. There's shoes laying all over the entryway. There's toothpaste on the, the mirror in the bathroom. It's, 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 that's just hard. We have three teenagers, man. So clean is a hard thing to come by. But there's that no one's coming level of clean. But then there's that we're going to have guests over level of clean. So when we have guests over, it is like, let's deploy the troops, all right? Somebody put the dishes in the dishwasher and get it running. Somebody clean off the kitchen table. Get the science experiment off of there. Put the shoes in the entryway in a nice area. Sweep all that stuff there. Kids, clean your bathroom. We'll clean our bathroom. Let's get this place ready because people are coming over. Yet, have you ever had that moment when you were not expecting anyone and the doorbell rang? 
And you look through the people and they're not selling vacuums. They're friends of yours. You know who they are. And your first thought, don't be so holy here. Your first thought is not, oh my goodness, we're blessed with some friends who stopped by unexpectedly. We don't do that. Our first thought is, oh my gosh, it's somebody we know. The house is a mess. What are we going to do? We can't just leave them out and not answer the door. Anyway, we can't do that. We've got to open it up and at least ask them to come in. What are we going to do? You know that moment. Oh my gosh, I wish they would have told us. You know, the same thing happens when we begin to realize how sinful we really are and how broken we really are. And then we see this whole thing about Jesus on the cross dying in our place. And God starts to, and I don't want to sound cliche, but God starts to kind of knock. And he knocks on our life and he's like, I love you. You know what I've done for you? I've died for you. I want to live in you. And so, so, so many times we're like, well, uh, uh, I got shoes in the entryway. I got dishes on the counter. I got I to gotta clean the bathroom. I, what am I going to, I've got, I've got lust in my heart. I'm, I'm addicted to this. I've got, that. My, this is falling apart in my life. And oh, I'm so greedy and I'm so angry. And oh, hold on, Lord, I can see him out. Hold on, let me, let me just clean this up. And then I'll answer the door. If God is speaking to you today and he's saying, give your life to me, it's a gift to you. And if you feel like you want to wait because you've got to go clean some things up first, then I have horribly failed in this message because that is not what it's about. We are saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. You can never do anything to pay for your sin. So just stop it. Just don't even try. We can't do it. We're saved by grace through faith. That's the love of Christ in our life. Let's bow our heads and we're going to close our eyes. We're going to pray for a moment. And as you're bowing your head at every campus today, we're going to take a moment and we're going to worship And we're going to contemplate and we're going to think on this and just let God continue to speak to our hearts. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you that we are, uh, we know the truth, we're broken people and sin is in us and we're guilty as charged. Yet, Lord, through it all, you've stepped into our place to be the substitute, to take upon your own wrath and judgment on sin And you've removed it from us and you've given us life in Christ. God, we are saved by grace through faith and we thank you for that. We're going to worship for just a moment. And I want you to just stay in your seat and let God just speak to your heart on this thing. And I'm going to come back out in just a minute. Sinner, come near, and earth has no sorrow. The 
heaven king heal earth has no sorrow the heaven king heal so lay down your burdens lay down your shame and all who are broken lift up your face and no longer come home you're not too far so lay down your hurt lay down your heart come as you are There's hope for the hopeless and all those who stray. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. And there's rest for the weary, and rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow, the heaven can kill. Again in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is for I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, and it's accomplished from start to finish by faith. And if you're here today, I certainly hope there's a bunch of you here today that have yet to begin a relationship with Christ. There's not a better day to do it than now. And I can't imagine a better perspective than understanding that we're broken and that he went to the cross for us, this essential truth of what it's all about, to follow Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you don't know him, give your life to him today. Let's bow our heads again. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. Father, thank you that you're speaking to our hearts. And I pray that you would reveal yourself to each of us in this moment. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to say, is that you? Are you one of the many who today's the day that you make that decision to place your trust, your faith in him, to be saved by grace through faith? Is today the day you say, Scott, pray for me. Include me in this prayer. I want Christ in my life. And if that's you, and you're sitting here, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, you're like, man, that's me. I want to give my life to Christ. I want you to just lift your hand right now where you're at. Just boldly say, that's me. I want Christ in my life. I see a couple of hands over here to my left and one back here, another one over here. Praise God for you. Who else? I want to give my life to Christ today. Scott, include me in this prayer. I see one hand right here. Praise God for you, ma'am. Who else? Yeah, 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 to my right. Good for you. And another gentleman here. And then uh, someone right over here. Yeah, I see your hand. Awesome, awesome. 
Who else? This is the day I'm going to be saved by grace through faith. Ma'am, I see your hand in the very back. Who else? Include me in this prayer. Yeah, I see you right here. Praise God. Okay, now put your hands down. I want you all to look at me for just one moment. I remember the day that I was sitting in a church kind of like this. I had my head bowed, my eyes closed, and someone was talking, and they basically posed the same question. And my hand shot up immediately. In that church, they did it a little bit different. They did it in a way that we are not going to do it here. But what they did was my hand went up, and then they said, if you've raised your hand, I want you to get out of your seat and come down front, and we're going to pray for you. And I thought, oh, man, are you? come on, man, don't do that to me. That's what I thought, but I got right up and I went for it. And I can tell you this without any doubt, it was the best decision that I've ever made in my life was to raise my hand and get on my feet and go ask Christ into my life. You're going to stay in your seat. But when I read Romans 1, verse 16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the, good me- the message about Christ. I'm not ashamed. I want to challenge those of you who just raised your hands. This room is full of people who call Cornerstone their home. And they love you. And they serve here so that you can have an opportunity to ask Christ in your life. And I want to give them the privilege to see you make this decision. So if you just raise your hand, I'm going to say, don't be ashamed of that. Be bold. Lift your hand back up right now. Everybody's looking around. Everybody's heads up. Look at him. Come on, raise your hand back up over here and over here. Right here, right here, right here. Right over here, a couple here. Back there. Right, right here. You see that, you guys? Yeah. Right here. Yeah. You know, they're clapping. They're celebrating for you because they know what you're about to do. We're going to pray. We're all going to pray as a family. We're going to lay it on the line. We're going to trust God to save our soul. That's what we're going to do today. Let's all pray. Father God, forgive me of my sin. Thank you that Jesus went to the cross for me so that I can be forgiven. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God, that you've risen from the dead. Be the Lord of my life. Be my Savior. Thank you that I'm saved by grace through faith, and it's your gift to me. God, I'm yours. I want my life to be centered around you. Thank you that you love me in Jesus' name. Amen. You better put your hands together again for him. Congratulations. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So here's what I want you to do. If you made that decision, I want you to let Cornerstone know because they care enough about you to be a place where you can come and ask questions and you can grow in your faith. So the way that I want you to do that, it's really super simple. In the seat in front of you, there's this deal right here. It says, I said yes to God. David and the band's going to play for just a minute. We're going to worship, and then we'll dismiss you. But I want you to fill this out while we're doing that. And then when you walk out in about a minute and a half, at every door, there's a table. You can drop it off there. Or the yes banners in the back. Let them know so that they can come alongside you and help you grow in Christ. And if someone brought you today or invited you, you'd better let them know too. They're going to be stoked, all right? Come on, man. Let's keep on worshiping.